This is Rebecca Johnson of Supergirl Radio, and if you like any of my conversations with Trentus and wanted to know where else you can find me on the internet, you can find Supergirl Radio at supergirlradio.com. You can find me on Twitter at DerbyKid, that's D-E-R-B-Y-K-I-D, and you can watch videos I've shot and edited on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash duckmilkprod, that's D-U-C-K-M-I-L-K-P-R-O-D. Big thanks to Trentus Magnus for inviting me on to help him punch reality. Harry Potter. Who's Harry Potter? You're a wizard, Harry. True then. Harry Potter has come to hope. Potter! How is it that a baby with no extraordinary magical talent was able to defeat the greatest wizard of all time? Lord Voldemort transferred some of his powers to you. You may be the chosen one, mate. This is a whole lot bigger than that. Messrs. Mooney, Padfoot, Prongs. Huh? tail! You can do things, can't you, Tom? Things other children can't. I can make bad things happen to people who are mean to me. I would be able to finish Salazar Slytherin's noble work. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter. He's back! He's back! Voldemort's back. You mark my words, there'll be killings next. Dumbledore is a great wizard. Only a fool would question it. I know what you did, Malfoy. You hexed her, didn't you? Hogwarts has been chosen to host the Tri-Wizard Tournament. Fight back! You coward, fight back! Why is it when something happens, it is always you three? Believe me, Professor. I've been asking myself the same question for six years. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I've been doing is talking about lots and lots of movies lately. And honestly, the reason for that is because of the fact that when I first started Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I started off talking about a lot of movies, and uh, at least to begin with. And then what ended up happening was I got cold feet on that a little bit basically what happened was I didn't want this to be known as the movie podcast, right? So basically what I decided to do consciously or unconsciously, I decided I'm going to zero in a little bit more on comics. And so if records be checked, what I think most people are probably going to discover is that the majority of my episodes that I've ever released at a very bare minimum, they include some kind of comic book discussion in there somewhere, right? And so I had an idea for a six-episode mega series that I could work my way through where I can kind of, like, intentionally break away from that. Does that make sense? Uh, basically, what I thought I could do is 
talk about things that, at least for me, have sort of become a little bit off the beaten path. And so where the rubber met the road on that was I had this wild and crazy idea to talk about Harry Potter movies. And then I also, at that same time, had the wild and crazy idea to talk about Batman movies. And then I had the wild and crazy idea of putting these two ideas together. And so it was I invited... For part of this mega series, I invited Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Network to talk about uh, the Chris Nolan Batman trilogy. And speaking as a little bit of an, uh, a biased participant, I'd like to think those episodes turned out relatively well. For the other three episodes, obviously there really was no way to talk about all of the Harry Potter movies in just three episodes. So I decided, well, there's no need to really reinvent the wheel here. Why not just talk about the first three Harry Potter movies and maybe at some point in the future come back to the other ones and just sort of catch as catch can, I suppose. And in relation to that, one of the very first names that popped to mind when I was hatching this brilliant scheme of mine was today's guest, which is to say one of the most interesting podcasters that's going right now, at least in my opinion, and also someone that I kind of consider to be a little bit of a friend. I'd like to welcome back to the show for the first time since, I guess, two weeks ago, for the first time since the last time, put it that way, <laughs> Rebecca Johnson. H hello, welcome back. It's great to talk to you. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me back. I, uh, I, I like listening to your podcast. I'm a huge fan, and I'm very excited to talk about what we're going to talk about. Uh, and I'm happy to have you here. You know, and like the thing about it is, I guess there are not, there aren't, there aren't as many, I guess, Harry Potter fans. I can't remember if we've ever talked about this before or not, because guys, just to kind of peel back the curtain here a little bit. It's been, irrespective of the fact that it's been two weeks since the last episode featuring Rebecca came out, it's been several months since the last time <laughs> she and I talked. So if any of this is repetitive, uh, well, just blame me because this is my show. But I'm just not really aware of all of that many Harry Potter fans in at least the two true freaks universe of podcasters. You know, there, if there are any, they've they've kept a pretty low profile because I'd like to think I've got my finger to the pulse relatively well. And I was, you know, I, I couldn't really think of all that many names. But one of the as I say, one of the first names that came to mind was actually you because of the fact that I'd seen certain, there was a, it, it, maybe it was something to do with the Huffington Post or I don't know, you linked to something or it was the Mary Sue it, or something like that. Some article related to Harry Potter or Harry Potter fandom or it was J.K. Rowling. It was something, I don't remember. And so that was, I guess, sort of the tipping point that came in all of this. So if you're ever curious about how that all came about, well, I have a Facebook news feed. <laughs> yeah, I've I've been a Harry Potter fan since uh, probably 2000, 2001, something like that. I was in college, and uh, my mom sort of introduced me to the Harry Potter books. So, I, yeah, I've been a Harry Potter fan for a long time, and so I, I, even though Harry Potter fandom for me has died down a little bit, I will occasionally find something on the Internet that I'm like, hey, that's pretty cool. I'll share it on Facebook. So you probably did. You probably did find me that way. Mm. Well, and so the when I was working through uh, just trying to fix as much as I could the last two episodes that we did, which, again, 
guys, I take full responsibility for that. I mean, cause this is my show. And so, uh, but one of the things I found was number one, the audio may actually be salvageable after all. And number two, you know what? Those are some really good episodes. And so <laughs> I, I was really happy with the way that those turned out. So Very anyway, good. now all of this is sort of a long way into, I guess, introducing today's subject. And so I'm going to dump this right back on Rebecca. What are we talking about today? Well, I believe we are talking about Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which is the third movie in the Harry Potter series. Uh, in in the, the books, it's the, the third book, and so it's the third movie in the Harry Potter film series. Absolutely, positively. And, you know, one of the things that, that I... It took... I'm just going to be very real with you for a minute. It, one of the things that it took a little bit of getting used to wasn't so much the fact that this movie represented a pretty significant sea change in the Harry Potter, I guess, film series. Specifically, it was the new director. And I'm going to do my best to pronounce this guy's name, Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, that's, how that... I, that's how I say it. So if that's how I say it, then it's the right way to say it. So I think you said it beautifully. Okay, well, thank you very much. And the objection I had, and keep in mind, I was speaking, I guess, from the standpoint of being a little bit of a, not, hopefully not like the obnoxious kind, but a little bit snooty Harry Potter fan. That was kind of the angle that I was coming at this with, where, you know, we were like fresh off the heels of the book release of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, and then here comes the third movie. And I thought, you know, this is kind of weird in that this type of, uh, I guess, tone and sort of visual style that uh, Koran is using in the Prisoner of Azkaban movie would have really been kind of perfect for a, for a uh, an Order of the Phoenix movie. But it took a long time to just kind of get over it and, I guess, accept this as the film version of the Prisoner of Azkaban. So... I don't know. Like, I guess, where were you coming from with all of that? I mean, were you in lockstep with Quran, like, right from the get-go in this movie? Or did you need a couple of years, like I did, to, to deal with it? No, the first time I, uh, the very first time that I saw this movie, I fell in love with it. I, I think, for me, this is my favorite one in the series. I, I think if anybody was going to ask me that, that's what I would tell them. And uh, I, I think what he did in terms of the visual style is so unique. It's it's set apart from the, the other movies because the first two were uh, directed by Christopher Columbus. And then I think four, was it Mike, somebody, was, it was someone else for four. And then I think five through seven were the same director. So this third movie, Prisoner of Azkaban, is just by itself with this one vision uh, from Alfonso Cron and it's 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 just it's beautiful and so I think for me I've connected more to this movie even though I would say book four Goblet of Fire is my favorite book I think this movie the third movie is my favorite so I think um, for me it's it's a movie that landed with me pretty quickly oh fair enough well one of the uh, I, I guess one of the objections I had it like, like I say I mean it really did come down to the to the tone and the style but one of the things that I did kind of enjoy was the fact and I I guess there's no way to say this without sounding a little bit disrespectful perhaps but Christopher Columbus I used to kind of joke that he made the first two Harry Potter movies kind of like Care Bears movies <laughs> and you know I don't think that's 
completely fair, but at the same time, I don't... Well, how wrong is that really, you know? And I guess I appreciated the more mature uh, mode of performance, the more mature storytelling uh, devices and that stuff. And I guess when you look... When, when I was finally able to take off the blinders of what the book was and what that had been, there is a lot of texture that's going on in the book that's absent from the movie, and that either works for you or it doesn't. But, you know, once you're able, I guess, to finally work your way around that, it's a really enjoyable movie, I must say. And it's actually become a little bit of a Halloween regular for me. I mean... Of all of the Harry Potter movies there have ever been, this is the most Halloween to me, you know? Uh, like, where are you on that? I, I think that's a good choice for Halloween. Um, it's definitely... Uh, the uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, you talk about the tone and the, the more mature aspects of it in terms of the story and the themes. And I think this is the movie where you start to see Harry Potter start to take things a little more seriously in terms of... Uh, the world and the people who are around him, even though Voldemort isn't really in this movie. I mean, in the other movies, he's he's very prominent, but this this doesn't really feature <laughs> Voldemort. It's it's more Dementors and Boggarts and um, you know the Marauders map and all of that stuff. So, um, I, but the interesting thing to me is though, even though Voldemort's not in this. This movie is talking all about, you know, something wicked this way comes. It's it's the the um, it's it's telling us that something darker is is coming. And Harry Harry's got to start growing up. Like those first two movies with Christopher Columbus, <laughs> they were, I guess, you know, I I. I I kind of enjoy the Care Bears reference because when I was a kid, I loved those Care Bears animated movies, and they were kind of scary. Now, now that I'm older and and, and I look back and on them, and I'm like, those movies were a little weird. Like, yeah. what what were they doing with those movies? Um, but yeah, so I I think those first two movies are you know supposed to introduce the world and how magical it is and how even though they have to deal with basilisks and and trolls and things like that, it's still relatively friendly like it's still like they can kind of deal with what's going on but once dementors start coming into play and the uh the arrival of voldemort especially in the fourth movie is coming things get darker things get a little more serious and so i think that that's part of why i like this movie as well is that you you get that sense of dread and that sense of an evil coming but it's done in such a way that it's it's very inviting and it's it's more of Harry kind of getting to know, you know, uh, Sirius Black and, and his his parents' friends. And so that sort of makes it a little easier to digest. So I know I, I think the draw of part of this movie for me is that serious tone, is that um, element of the darkness approaching. So I, I would sort of agree with that, actually. Fair enough. Well... Uh, to get into the, the summary of the movie itself, basically what I'm going to do is just take the easy way out and read off of Wikipedia. And then periodically what Rebecca and I are going to do is just break in and give you guys our thoughts, whether you want them or not. So <laughs> anyway, here we go. Story synopsis is as follows. Harry Potter, now aged 13, has been spending another dissatisfying summer uh, how do you pronounce? Is this private drive or private drive? I've always heard private. So that's yeah, me too. But it's I, I've heard 
like some some people say, I don't want it, whatever. Okay. Harry Potter, now aged 13, has been spending another dissatisfying summer at Privet Drive. When Uncle Vernon's sister Marge insults Harry's parents, he becomes angry, turns green, grows giant freaking muscles of doom. Wait, that's something else. <laughs> insults Harry's parents, he becomes angry and accidentally causes her to inflate and float away. I'm going to put a little thumbtack in this uh, synopsis and basically, you know, I, you know, I honestly don't think I've ever talked about this incident before, but when I was about 13, this obscure family member that I never even knew we had up until this moment paid a visit to us and it wasn't during the summer, praise God, (laughs) but she nevertheless did pay us a visit and guys, if I'm lying, I'm dying. Her name really was Marge. Right. And I was related to her only by marriage. Now, guys, I'd like to think that when you really get down to brass tacks, everybody's family is equally insane. Now, you may have to dig deeper in some cases to find it. But sooner or later, you're going to find probably two or three worthless people or two or three maniacs two or three perverts or something you know everybody's gonna have like those two or three family members you just don't want to spend a whole lot of time with especially by yourself right and it really was kind of like aunt marge coming to visit because it really it literally was in fact aunt marge coming to visit and basically you know she did that kind of stereotypical annoying adult thing where she like she she pinched my cheeks and she said aren't you just so cute like i'm freaking four years old Right. And I wasn't four. I was actually 13 and I was a rather rowdy 13 year old. And it really meant nothing to me to punch people who annoyed me. So anyway, in in that entire week, I mean, this was I mean, my God, this was like the week from hell. Okay, because every single day this this woman would find the most obnoxious, passive aggressive way to ruin everything, you know like little routines and stuff that most families fall into in terms of how things get done around the house and all of that. She pretty much completely destroyed like all of those things. Right. And so it was, you know, I dare not exaggerate in saying that none of literally none of us were sorry to, to, to see her leave. And in fact, the only reason any of us even really tolerated her in the first place is because my grandmother, which is to say my mom's mother put a very, high premium on the stability of this relationship for reasons which I'm now convinced will remain a mystery to me until my dying day. But she wanted basically all of us to just, why can't we all just get along, you know, and just like each other. And, you know, especially when you're a kid, like nine times out of 10, what that works out to is you putting up with somebody else's annoying crap is pretty much what happens, right? So, you know, you come home and you find one of her uh, bras just uh, sitting on the bottom of the stairs and you're not supposed to think to yourself golly that's rather unusual no it's just you're just supposed to roll with it because hey that's how that's how marge rolls and so reading this book and then later seeing this movie like as an adult i mean the fact that i didn't even have to change the freaking name in order <laughs> like to connect to this on like a personal level i mean sometimes you know I think it's the mark of a good writer that they can take something that is 
completely fantastical, totally foreign, completely fictional, and entirely made up, and somehow find a way to ground it for you. But there's a lot to be said sometimes for just like the day-to-day crap that we all have to put up with and putting that in a book, such as annoying family members coming to visit, and then you one night perhaps getting a little bit angry with her and shouting, and then, you know, saying, Harry saying all the, or doing, God knows, all the things to his Aunt Marge that I wish I could have done to (laughs) mine. So... Anyway, that was pretty much the diatribe. Uh, since we're stopped, do you have anything you want to toss in? Uh, toss in there. Yeah, I, w- I would agree that it's it's sometimes on, on my worst days. I'm I'm glad I don't have any magical powers that I could abuse because Harry does that a little bit in this scene. He's not supposed to, and this is a little world building that you find out that they're not supposed to use magic outside of of hogwarts around the muggles and so he could get in a lot of trouble for that so he he does sort of abuse his his abilities to selfishly get rid of aunt marge and it's really interesting to me with this movie and and the way it opens because there's a lot of comedy gags with this it's really funny when marge sort of blows up and she floats out the window and and goes away it's it's all very funny and there's a lot of comedy gags as well with the night bus that we'll we'll probably get to later but it's 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 kind of put in there with the very serious stuff that happens when you encounter the dementors and things get cold and scary and dark and so there's a nice balance between the threat of what's happening in terms of the the darkness and the villains and then you have these fun little comedy bits that sort of lighten everything up so i i actually really like that uh opening with marge and and the dursleys because it it does show a, a a real uh personal relatable thing to harry that you know i can i can see through him that you know i get angry sometimes and and sometimes i want to yell or sometimes i want to make people who are upsetting me go away but um he doesn't handle it very well and this is the first time i think that you see because in the books in the harry potter series in the the books harry eventually gets to a point where he has some anger problems in in some situations and so you can see that a little bit in this third movie that that's there's a little bit of that in there so I, i in on a harry potter character level i think that's really interesting agreed and this is really when you think about it like the perfect time for that to happen because when you're 13 years old like i don't know how things worked out for 13 year old rebecca but for 13 year old (laughs) magnus guys like i was saying i mean that's not idle bs i mean i really was a rowdy kid and i didn't really have the best anger management skills and you know there were times when well i'm just gonna say it i mean i would get into fights with other with other kids that really it didn't have to go that way and so I guess what I appreciate about the Harry Potter series in general, but specifically Harry Potter, the character, is that there were not necessarily everything, but there were elements of Harry Potter's life that I don't think sir, there, there are people out there that maybe it's not necessarily universal, but a lot of people, they can relate to Harry on some level or another you know the idea of coming to a place where your legend looms as large as harry uh, as harry does well that was i had two older brothers when i uh showed up for my first day of high school a lot of people were 
uh, introducing themselves to me on the fir- on the first day of school. And these are like total strangers and stuff who were treating me like I was going to be a football hero the way that my brothers had been or, or, or what have you. And it's like, how the hell, who are you people, you know? <laughs> and, or, or even sometimes it's more literal, like having a scar on my forehead. I had it before that kid did. <laughs> so um, just little things like that, you know, I, I just dig it. So to get back into the summary, if you're ready. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Harry flees with his luggage Fed up with his life with the Dursleys. The night bus arrives, which is to say, if for those of you who are having trouble picturing what that might look like, imagine a special purple wizarding taxi, but we're talking about like a one of those London-style uh, double or triple-decker buses that they're kind of famous for driving around. Just picture one of those. So the night bus arrives and delivers Harry to the Leaky Cauldron, And actually, there's a comma there, but I'm just going to put this little summary on pause and say this was because there's actually something else going on here that we need to talk about anyway that the summary is leaving out. This was, I guess, the great escape, right? Like Harry running away from home and he's fed up with the Dursleys. And so I get the idea that he just left home without any real idea of what he was going to do or where he was going to go. And. Like, if he had a plan at all, I think what Harry might have had in mind was that he was going to crash with the Weasleys maybe for the rest of the summer and then head off to Hogwarts. You know, he'd been kind of he'd gotten kind of fed up with the Dursleys. And honestly, who can blame him? And heads out into the night, which we later we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. But we later find out how dangerous that really was for him to do. And or how dangerous it was thought for him to do said Magnus cryptically. And while he's out, he basically sees as he's wandering the streets, he sees this giant freaking black death dog of doom. And he basically raises his wand to defend himself, which is about the time the, the night bus shows up. And as far as the audience knows, possibly rescues Harry from a fate worse than death. And we're going to see more of this giant black dog of doom before too long, but that becomes a pretty crucial plot point in this book. But I guess what I like about this is this is one of the early instances of the, in this movie where the more, I would almost want to say like more of like a horror movie kind of vibe gets laid down in that Harry's walking the streets. You hear the, the wind rustling around and playground equipment is spinning ominously and squeakily in, in in the breeze, and everything is just dark, desolate, and empty. And I remember seeing this moment for the first time in theaters and thinking that this m- movie series has officially turned a corner. You know, everything that it had been up to this point, kind of almost Disney-like in terms of it's it's style it was leaving that behind now that's not in a snooty kind of way like that's kid stuff but just in a i guess this sort of unfolding maturity type of way and not to beat beat this thing to death but it was it was just one of those moments that i point back to even now and say oh so that's what they're doing here i get it 
So I just thought that was a really effective sequence. Yeah, I like that you brought that up because there is a lot of style in terms of how Quran tries to make you see just how isolated Harry is because he's he's out there by himself. He has that one suitcase that's probably everything he's ever owned. And he's it, he looks lonely. And it's very sad because, you know, he's he's probably been lonely like that his whole life. Even when he lived with the Dursleys, they <laughs> didn't really take very good care of him. They didn't love him very much. Uh, I, I guess in their way, they thought maybe they loved him. But in terms of actually genuinely caring about him he probably didn't feel that so i i like that they uh that cron made a point to show you know just visually how lonely he was that he's he's walking down this you know uh dark street and uh, like you point out the the playground stuff kind of swinging around it it, it does kind of give it that scary like anything can pop out of the corner vibe yeah and it's what I, one of the things I want to do is, uh, apart from kind of like repudiating all of these early reservations I had about uh, Koran, is I guess just kind of emphasize how well, like how right a lot of these decisions really were. You know, because it, as obvious as it may seem to a lot of you, a lot of the creative decisions that Koran, or for that matter, how obvious it may seem to you, Rebecca, a lot of the creative decisions that he was making, I hate to think what this says about me, but it would not have occurred to me to do some of this stuff. Oh, in, in terms of actually uh, setting up the shots and, and, and using those specific shots to do. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting because I, I haven't read the books in a long time, so I don't remember if those things were described in book three and if if he just kind of took that and, and went with it and it was probably in the script for harry to walk out of the house and and leave mm-hmm. um but yeah i i think somebody like quran has such a and i know this sounds so cliche but he you know directors have to have a certain visual style and i think the best directors you'll always see like a common thread like you'll you'll be able to watch an alfonso uh, alfonso quran movie and know that's a quran movie like you'll be able to recognize it. And so I think uh, for someone like that who who does take a unique approach to it, you will see him choose shots that maybe somebody else wouldn't do. And so I, I think it's neat to see movies where, like, those kinds of things will surprise you because, it, it, you know, it, and I, I don't know if I would pick those same shots either, um, but it's neat because that's his perspective. That's what he wants to show you about this moment and the scene with Harry. So uh, I think that's a cool point to bring up agreed and with that to get into the sort of the i guess the night bus element of this movie this is actually one of the few things where quran and i were actually seeing eyeball to eyeball because this is pretty much exactly the way that i thought it looked in when i was reading the book for the first time and that somehow this somehow the night bus this impossibly tall impossibly ungainly vehicle it somehow by magic, I suppose, able to take these incredibly sharp, perfectly right angle turns at like 250 miles an hour. <laughs> and it's like the physics of that, you know, you'd think it would, it should send the the bus flipping over on top of itself, but it doesn't because magic. And it <laughs> looks exactly the way that I thought it should. And, you know, there are not very many instances of that in this movie, 
like basically the Dementors and the Night Bus sequence. Those are the only two things I can think of offhand where Koran, and this is not a criticism, you understand, but that those are the only two things where I, I can think of where Koran and I were exactly on the same wavelength with each other. Everything else was a little bit different. And I mean that in a complimentary way. You know, he made things look a lot more interesting than I think I would have. So, but one of the things that we kind of have to talk about here because this was a kind of a bone of contention for a lot of fans for a really long time was the talking shrunken head on board the night bus. <laughs> and if I recall correctly, what I remember a lot of Harry Potter fans saying in the uh, summer of 2004 is the talking shrunken head was the Jar Jar Binks of the, uh, of the Harry Potter film series. And I don't know if I'd go quite that far, but that is one really annoying character. And I was not happy to see that. Or rather, I was not sad to see the end of that. Uh, like the talking head, like considering that really wasn't in the book. Like, where were you coming from on that? I could have done without it. I, I would agree. It's it's I don't know. I think it's maybe something that maybe they put in there to drive the scene and kind of help you understand what's happening. But I, I think you can do without it. And I don't think you need it. I think you could just, you know, have Harry experiencing everything. So I don't know why it's there. I don't know why it's, you know, it seems like a little bit of a stereotype. Um, so for me, I, I could come and go with it. It's, it's fine in the movie. But if, if, if it was my movie, I probably wouldn't have done that. But I, I think the scene still is very good, and the sequence is very good, but uh, I can see why some people have problems with it. <laughs> Fair enough. And very diplomatically stated. <laughs> yeah, I, right. I don't want to say I hate it, uh, but, <laughs> but I could have I done without it. Oh, well, by all means, feel free to speak your mind. <laughs> so, all right, getting back into the summary, the night bus delivers Harry to the Leaky Cauldron, where he's forgiven by Minister of Magic Cornelius Fudge for using magic outside of Hogwarts. I'm going to put this back on pause and say, this is a bigger deal than you might think. I mean, the the Ministry of Magic, they were willing to look the other way when Dobby used, the, used uh, magic in the Dursley house back in the Chamber of Secrets. And simply because of the fact that Harry showed up alive and in one piece at the Leaky Cauldron, he literally fell into the the minister's lap. The minister, I think, was willing to just let bygones be bygones because, hey, the kid's still alive, so we're doing good here. But there's going to come a point... Well, actually, hell, I'm not going to talk in riddles. In the fifth book, well, the fifth movie, the fact that Harry is accused of using magic outside of uh, outside of school is a much bigger deal at that point because it's a very different political situation. And so what ends up happening is that we find out, well, among other things, what we find out is that Harry was never once treated fairly for using magic outside of school. When you really think about it, you know, uh, the two times, uh, or rather in the chamber of secrets and then here in prisoner of Azkaban, he basically gets away with, with it scot-free and in uh, the Order of the Phoenix, he doesn't get away with it scot-free. I mean, he gets the hammer of God dropped on him. 
And in both cases, neither of this is standard operating procedure. So it does kind of raise the question, you know, what would it look like if somebody in Harry's position is accused of using magic outside of school when he's underage, you know? Like, what is the normal procedure for something like that? Uh, do we even know? I don't know. I, But I think that's a good point to bring up because I think you're right that there is a political climate. There's a shift that happens after Goblet of Fire when you get to Order of the Phoenix. It's much more serious. Voldemort has returned. Uh, things with the ministry are very shady. There's a lot of shady folks that are involved in that. It's very corrupt. And so I think they see Harry as more of a threat there. I think... Um, in Chamber of Secrets, it's a little more playful. There's, you know, uh, cakes that are <laughs> thrown in people's faces. And, and Dobby is a house elf, so he doesn't really have a lot of status. So for him to use it and Harry to be kind of part of that, um, or even the with the, the car, the flying car, that's kind of, it's fairly innocent. Um, but once you get into Harry, you know, joining the Order of the Phoenix and, and starting to train other students to do what he can do that's that's a much more serious threat to the ministry of magic magic so i think that that is a really cool point to think about that i've, I've never thought about it and i've never considered it but um but there is a, a a way that he's treated differently in in different uh parts of the story yeah and i the thing about this that that just kind of works for me is you and you kind of touched upon this a second ago. It's a little bit of world building where by way of demonstration, you know, we don't always necessarily get a full explanation of, you know, of uh, all of these oddball things that Harry is constantly coming face to face with. And one of the things that that does is by, I guess, not treating it like a novelty by, I guess, basically taking these in these really extreme fantastical ideas and treating them as though they're day-to-day -day reality that has the weird effect i think of helping the reader or in this case the viewer accept this a little bit more easily than they other than they otherwise would because if we were to get like this long and boring and didactic history of what the night bus is how it works how long it's been in operation and I guess, you know, what a day in the life of Stan Shunpike might actually be like. <laughs> I don't know why, but for some reason, like the believability of it would, it would have to get torpedoed after that. Whereas just by giving enough information to, I guess, get the flavor of it without going into unnecessary laborious detail or about what the night bus is or how underage magic is typically uh, treated it it in a weird kind of way it maintains the illusion by not overly explaining it i mean i'd almost want to compare it to uh i guess the star the star wars school of science where george lucas never explains what a repulsor lift is or how it works he just shows you that it works and expects you to buy into it and the one question I've never heard any Star Wars fan ask is, how exactly does that stuff work? It, <laughs> we, we just accept that it works. Or like a lightsaber, you turn it on and it, and it extends to about a meter and a half in length. Nobody asks why. Like, how does this thing uh, close in on itself? It does. That's all you need to know. And I don't know. I just I, I think that's always a more creative way of doing things when – I guess the narrative focuses on story and character as opposed to mechanics. 
Am I making sense here? Because I don't know if I don't know if I'm doing such a good job. You absolutely are, and I totally 100% agree. And I think what's so great about the night bus, and and you sort of touched upon this, is that you don't need to know every last detail of where the night bus, you know, who created the night bus and who operates it, you know, and where does it go. Uh, you don't need to know that. I, I think once Harry steps up into that bus, all you need to know is, is it's a magical bus and it's part of the wizarding world. And so whatever crazy stuff happens with it, it's just part, it's just magical. It's just a magic thing. And it's something, it's a way that wizards and witches uh, use to transport themselves. And that's all you have to know. And I, I for one, am a viewer who, and a, a book reader who I'm, I'm like, I'll go with that. That's that's part of that world, and it's different from the Muggles. It's different from what we use, but I can buy it as part of the the magical world. Right. Well, uh, moving right along here, uh, this the story summary picks up with after reuniting with his best friends Ron and Hermione, Harry learns that Sirius Black, which is to say a convicted supporter of the Dark Wizard Voldemort, whom this is the guy who murdered Harry's parents, has escaped from Azkaban prison, intent on killing Harry. And, golly, we just seem to take this thing a sentence at a time here. <laughs> um, all right, well, to put this thing back on pause, you know, this is, I, I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to dwell too much on the differences between the book and the movie, but what we're seeing here, there's a little bit of a compression of the timeline that's going on here which, again, would not have occurred to me necessarily to do if I were making this making this movie myself. But what – and again, it's been a long time since I've read the Prisoner of Azkaban book. But going off of memory, it's actually several weeks that Harry's at uh, the uh, Leaky Cauldron, which is as much as, as anything. It's not just a, a pub. It's also a hotel and restaurant, and it, it's sort of – whatever it needs to be, I guess. And he's actually there for several weeks. And what he ends up doing is just basically spending a goodly bit of the summer, just chilling out in Diagon Alley. And because of the fact that Koran really only has about an hour and a half, two hours at most two hours, 20 minutes to tell his story. He basically has to find a way to nip and tuck wherever he can. And so Basically, what the movie shows us, I, at least I think if you want to interpret it, this that Harry spent several weeks at the Leaky Cauldron, I guess you can. It's just not shown. What I think we're supposed to infer is that the next morning, Harry meets up with the Weasleys and Hermione, and basically everything just picks off, you know, from there. And in some way, again, I understand why this is being done. You know, you got to get that story moving along. But there's a lot of texture and characterization that comes in from uh, Harry's uh, time in Diagon Alley. For example, he, he gets uh, free ice cream sundaes at uh, the ice cream shop because of the fact, hey, he's Harry Potter. <laughs> and there's no real rhyme or reason to that. It's just he's treated like a hero by virtually everybody in, in the wizarding world. And so his name is a legend. And so he's treated like a celebrity. And that's that kind of comes into play a little bit later on when Harry and her – or not comes into play, but it gets paid off at least a little bit later on when Harry, Ron, and Hermione uh, infiltrate Diagon Alley in the Deathly Hallows book. And Harry looks around specifically at that 
ice cream shop that he'd spent a summer at a couple of years earlier. And he noticed that it's closed down. The windows are boarded up. And it's like you can see more clearly the just corrosive, corruptive influence that Voldemort taking over the Wizarding World, what that has done to the Wizarding World. And again, you know, one must prioritize when making these movies, and I get that, but it's just one of the necessary casualties is you kind of lose some of that some of that texture, you know? And I just, it's not good, it's not bad, it's just, it's, it's occupational hazard, I guess. I, you know, where are you on that? I, I, I think that's a, an awesome thought. Um, I, I think that it is tough when you have to compress things down and, and when you can't be able to, especially with, uh, you know, Prisoner of Azkaban, you know, coming so, uh, so much previous to those, uh, so many years before the, of course, the later movies. Uh, so it, it's one of those things where J.K. Rowling could set up things with this movie uh, I, I think a little bit she's she set up Ron and Hermione a, a little bit in this movie, but um, mm-hmm. but in in terms of the books, it's I think you do get a, a little a little better sense of being able to look back there. For me, I, I sort of think of it in in terms of being able to either uh, with the movies sort of foreshadow things, where in the books you have more of an opportunity to look back and see how it all connects, and I think that's so much harder to do with movies because they're uh, directed by different people, and even some of the the scripts I think were written by different people. So it you don't get as much of a continuity there. But with J.K. Rowling and, and writing the books, she was able to think about those kinds of things and and tie everything back together in a way that really paid off and uh, f- felt like a reward as a reader. So I, I like that thought in in terms of uh, the books versus the movies. Well, and it's it's got to be doubly hard when. It's one thing, like, if you're Peter Jackson making the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you have three books that you're working from. You know where the story begins. You know where it ends. And you know, I guess, what the 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 bones of the story, like the, non, the non-negotiables have to be. Chris Columbus, Alfonso Cuaron, all the rest, a lot of, like, a... Up until a certain point, they were all pretty much kind of flying blind. You know, the Harry Potter book series was still being published, and they didn't necessarily know what a small incidental clue in one book that you you don't know is a clue at the time until much later on, like the locket in Order of the Phoenix. It's only in, in when you read uh, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, you're like, oh my god, that locket that they were playing around – actually, it wasn't even – no, it's actually Deathly Hallows when you find out that the locket that they're playing with in, in uh, the Order of the Phoenix book, that has real value to it. You know, that's not just a, a random locket. But when you're reading Order of the Phoenix for the first time, independently of what's come later, you don't necessarily know that. And so uh, that only, honestly, had only just occurred to me. Quran had no way of knowing where this was even going to go when all was said and done. And there's really no ending to that, so I'm just going to say big juicy steak. What do you got? <laughs> That's very true. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully we can make a little bit more progress with this summary now. Um, 
the trio are returning to Hogwarts for the school year on the Hogwarts Express when Dementors suddenly uh, board the train searching for Sirius. One enters the trio's compartment, causing Harry to pass out. New Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, Professor Remus Lupin, repels the Dementor with a Patronus charm. I'm going to put this back on pause and say, because there's actually something really big in the next sentence that we're going to have to talk about, so I want to save that for later. For right now, the the idea of Dementors, you know, number one, they just looked exactly the way that I thought they would based on reading the Prisoner of Azkaban book. But number two, and this kind of leads into something else, basically what I what I pictured in my mind when I was reading The Prisoner of Azkaban, and again, I guess Quran and I were coming from the same place on this, I just basically pictured the ringwraiths from Lord of the Rings and figured, okay, well, they look more or less like that, but they can fly. And that's about it. That's really the difference. And otherwise, they're pretty much the same thing. And when I really started thinking about that, I was like, you know what? My God, they really are the same thing. You know, I mean, a Dementor can suck the soul right out of you and transform you into a Dementor, whereas the Ringwraiths, the Nazgul, they can, through methods of their own, usually I think with their sword, stick you with it, and they can transform you into a Ringwraith. And in each case, you're losing your soul and your humanity. And one of the things that kind of made me, but that kind of threw me off about that when I really started considering like the similarities between that as the book series went on, I started seeing a lot of similarities between Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. And so I don't want to drag you into into a debate that you don't necessarily have any stake in, but the the amount of similarities that exist between Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, I mean, really do defy description. I mean, are you familiar with, with the, the debates and arguments that people have had about that? I know that people do compare the Dementors to the Wraiths. Um, admittedly, I am not a, a, I I have the Lord of the Rings movies on DVD. I, I like those movies, but I could not get through the prologue of Fellowship of the Ring in the in the book. I just I, I realized very quickly that Lord of the Rings, in terms of a, a book reading experience, <laughs> was not for me. It was a lot to keep up with the different locations and the characters and the languages and all of that. So um, it wasn't necessarily for me. So I don't catch as many of those uh, comparisons. But my question would be because the Dementors have this. Uh, really, uh, the atmosphere, when they come into a scene, they change everything. Things get colder and darker and more yeah. ominous. And I, I was wondering, since I don't know much about the, the wraiths in terms of the comparison to the Dementors, do the wraiths have that same kind of effect in terms of the weather and the surrounding atmosphere? Not that I can recall, no. I mean, I think the most that people that most people can really lay claim to is they, they feel kind of creeped out. Like I'm sure you've had moments like this where like you're outside or something like that. It's dark and you start looking around and it's like your, your spidey sense starts going off for some reason and uh, they can trigger that. And it's nowhere near as big and expressive as the Dementors, but I think that's about the most that, that they do. 
So that that might separate them out a little bit, because even Ron, that that first time that they experienced the mentors on the Hogwarts Express, they talk about how it it even makes them feel different. They feel differently in terms of uh, you know what they're experiencing when they show up. So I, I think that that's what makes the Dementors unique a little bit to me. Right. Okay. Well, fair enough. <sighs> Next, there's a, a little bit of a matzo ball that we need to chew on here a little bit. At Hogwarts, Headmaster Albus Dumbledore announces that Dementors will be guarding the school while Sirius is at large. And I don't want to dwell too much on this, but I do want to say that this this movie, Prisoner of Azkaban, basically this marked the debut of Mike, Michael Gambon, I guess is how you pronounce his name. I think that's right. Okay. Uh, basically the new the new uh, Dumbledore, this is where he takes over because the previous actor, Richard Harris, passed away not very long uh, before the Chamber of Secrets movie came out. So everything that he needed to do for Chamber of Secrets, that had been completed by then, so no problem there. But obviously we got to do something with Dumbledore going forward. So obviously the only thing anybody can do is recast the part. So I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but I just want to get it on the record anyway. The Battle of the Dumbledores, which one did you prefer? (laughs) Well, it's tough because I think they do bring something different to each portrayal. I think they got away with the recasting, I think, because people knew that there was a death. So you have a little more sympathy from the audience because they want the story to continue. So they'll they'll take it any way they can. Um, but it also helps that Dumbledore had that big white beard. He could kind of hide behind um, in the robes and things like that. So you could kind of get away with another guy playing the part because he sort of had those same physical attributes to him. So... I didn't mind as much that they had a new actor, and it was very unfortunate that Richard Harris passed away because it it sounded like he had a really good rapport with Daniel Radcliffe personally. And um, I think what's really interesting looking back at all the movies is that when you go back to those first two, Richard Harris, um, his Dumbledore has more of a a friendlier, almost like a, not father figure. I always kind of imagine Dumbledore as more of like a grandfather, like a wise old yeah. sage. And yeah. and especially in those first two movies, he is that wise mentor that that really guides Harry and, and, and really helps him understand what's going on with this this world and, and what he's capable of, uh, capable of. And with the new Dumbledore, he's a little more, especially in this in this movie in Azkaban, you see he's a little more mischievous. Like he's he's a little, especially with the time turner and everything, he's a little bit more. And maybe that's just the character of Dumbledore. He's a little more once they get to know him and develop a relationship. These these kids and these characters develop a relationship with him. He's a little more willing to look away. And, and let them get away with some things that maybe he shouldn't. And so I think of Michael Gambon's uh, Dumbledore as a little more, uh, he's a little sneakier, he's a little, um, not kookier, but like he, he has a little more personality to him. I don't know if that makes any sense, but Richard Harris's Dumbledore, I always felt like was a little more reserved. Agreed. And, yeah, that kind of kindly old grandfather. And I don't mean that like in a snide dismissive way, but there was a moment in 
the Goblet of Fire that honestly it had me. I'm using kind of quotation marks here, but it had me kind of scared. You know, how were they going to bring this moment about in the movies using Richard Harris? And it's this moment at the end of the movie where basically Dumbledore has to blow the door open to uh, Mad-Eye Moody's office. And in the book, it's very careful to say, you know, the the kind of kindly old grandfather Dumbledore is nowhere to be found. This is the ass kicking torqued off. I'm going to get a piece of you, Dumbledore. Don't mess with him. And I, I hate to say, I disavow it as I say it, but I I just couldn't picture Richard Harris really being able to pull that off. I mean, you know, the guy was uh, a a very well-respected film and stage actor. So I have to assume that, you know, it takes more than a smile to get his reputation. I just, I just wouldn't I just couldn't see that happening. Whereas the first time I set eyes on Michael Gambon as Dumbledore, I did, it was almost like the Henry Cavill effect where you don't need to see the movie to know that Henry Cavill is going to be good as Superman. And in some ways that's kind of unfair to him, but the same kind of thing sort of applied with Michael Gambon. It's like I didn't need to see that moment in in Goblet of Fire to know that he was going to nail it. And I was not at all convinced, at all convinced that Richard Harris could have done it, you know. And so when it really came right down to it, I mean, I'm I'm trying to basically talk about the death of a of another human being in in very casual and dismissive terms. And for that, I apologize. But I'm sorry that it happened. I, you know, my heart goes out to his family for their loss. But at least as far as the movies are concerned, I do think Harry Potter benefited from Michael Gambon playing the part. You know, notwithstanding the tragedy that necessitated that, which again, I regret. But having said that, I do think this was ultimately a change for the better, no matter why this change had to happen in, in the first place. So I, hopefully that all makes sense. Uh, no, it makes sense. And I think it's a good point because in terms of the story and the, the franchise moving forward from that point, from Azkaban forward, uh, looking at it from a Dumbledore character perspective, there are different requirements for Dumbledore moving forward. You know, those first two movies, you know, everything is kind of contained within Hogwarts. All the the craziness that they have to deal with is in those you know, those, that building in that, that area. But once you get to prisoner of Azkaban, it's outside the walls. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's starting to grow. The threat is getting bigger. And so for Dumbledore, I think he, I think when I, when I talk about his personality and when you were talking about, you know, him sometimes needing to be angry because things are getting more serious and, and the evil is starting to come in and the, the, the wickedness is starting to come through. I think there are bigger requirements for Dumbledore than just being the the kindly old grandfather. He has to get back into Order of the, Order of the Phoenix fighting evil ways. So I think that's a great point, actually. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. All right. So finally make some more progress here. Hogwarts groundskeeper Hagrid is announced as the new care of magical creatures teacher. His first class goes awry when Draco Malfoy deliberately provokes a hippogriff, which is to say Buckbeak, into attacking him. 
Draco's father, Lucius Malfoy, later has Buckbeak sentenced to death. And what I thought you and I could do is actually kind of circle back to that plot point a little bit later, because we haven't heard the last of that. And moving right along, the fat lady's portrait, which guards the uh, the uh, Gryffindor common room, is found uh, destroyed and empty. Terrified and hiding in another painting, the fat lady tells Dumbledore that Sirius Black has entered the castle. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> So I'll let you take the lead on that one. Yeah, I think this is really, uh, it shows a lot of the paranoia and the misinformation that's going on w within the, the Hogwarts and the Wizarding World community because they all think that Sirius Black is this huge threat. And it could be, you know, it couldn't be further from the truth. He's he's a he's a good guy and he, he wants to connect with Harry and he's he's innocent and he's he's been wrongly accused. And so I think it's, it's kind of interesting to see where the there's a lot of paranoia that happens. Like there's, you know, one of my favorite shots in the movie is, you know, all the, the, the big doors to Hogwarts and all the locks that sort of interlock together. And you see that there's so much security that's going on in Hogwarts, especially after the, the fat lady who I enjoy. Um, you see that everybody is very scared and everybody is very threatened by Sirius Black. But what, what I think is so sad to me is that they don't have any reason to be. But what's scarier is the threat of the Dementors, which who are actually supposed to be the guards of Hogwarts. So it's very it's sort of backwards to me that they're scared of this innocent guy who is actually a good guy. And they're using this scary elements of the story the dementors to actually protect them so i think it's a very odd odd thing that's happening in this part of the movie agreed and you know it you know not to get too a you know too ahead of ourselves but it was one of the things that kind of made me uh, i guess a little bit thoughtful you know reading the book and then when um when sirius's I guess his true nature, his better nature, finally comes to light. And, you know, basically to find out, you know, what he's had to live with, you know, literally his entire life. and Well, not his entire life, but for most of his adult life at least, you know, and the way that history at that point was poised to remember him. And, you know, just what a strange fate that would have to be to live your whole life as serious freaking black you know, and thought of as second only to, to to Voldemort in terms of how evil you are. And, you know, I don't want to bend spoons on this at least too much, but, you know, one of the things that kind of led, led to is me considering, I, I suppose, some of the things that have been consigned to, to history books that upon honest and objective investigation, you know, these kind of simple truths and fairy tale events that didn't really happen the way that we're told they happened in history, but nevertheless, none dare say so out loud. And it's, I, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here by saying that, you know, Sirius Black was, you know, the catalyst for all of that, but it did kind of make me think of, you know, I guess, I don't want to be specific here because uh, that's a good way to alienate probably everybody that's listening to this but basically certain things of history that that a lot of people kind of take for granted that i think if they were to uh 
honestly and objectively investigate for themselves, they might find are not true at all. But nevertheless, you know, it's like this stuff's been consigned to the history books anyway, and so we're kind of stuck with it. So, and I don't want to drag you in into you know touchy things like that. But other than to say, you know, it's it's kind of weird sometimes how the lie can become the truth so easily in the court of public opinion, you know? Oh, yeah, that happens in all kinds of eras, uh, you know, political, historical, um, science, uh, you know, all areas have those things that you, I, I know, like, I knew things as a kid that I gr grew up and I was like, oh, my gosh, that's, you know, you do a Google search and go down a rabbit hole and, and you're like, what? What is this? I've never heard of this. So that definitely happens. And I think that does happen with Sirius. And I think one of the things that um, I, I'm remembering is that they think that he is the only person who's ever broken out of Azkaban, which is supposed to be like the most terrible prison in the wizarding world. And so I think that his legend sort of grows even after he escapes Azkaban. He had that legend where he was supposedly the one who turned the Potters over to Voldemort and all of that. So he had that, you know, passed to him. And then he he breaks out of Azkaban and has this uh, present slash future that makes him even more legendary, makes him even scarier. And so I think they're all just kind of going off hearsay and they've, they've never actually encountered Sirius. And I, I, I don't know how the Wizarding World, like the, the law goes. I don't know if he could testify for himself. Like, I don't know how that legal proceeding went. I don't They may not have a legal proceeding. But, uh, but so nobody really hears from him. They just hear, like you say, they just hear what's been documented, which, which is uh, what's been happening in the, the history books and what they know of him. So, yeah, it's very unfortunate because I think once they get to know him, they, they find out all of that stuff is not the case. Right. Well, and the other thing uh, related to Sirius is that he's played by, played rather well, in fact, by Gary Oldman. And this is one of those times, uh, guys, when, you know, I'm one of those people who, or at least I used to be one of those people who liked learning about other people's creative processes, like uh, artists, film directors, musicians, whatever, finding out what exactly is it that makes them tick. You know, like what was George Lucas really thinking about the first time he thought of Star Wars, for example, you know? And or what did Jimmy Page have for breakfast the day that he wrote Stairway to Heaven? You know, something like that. And this is one of those times when, guys, I think I kind of need to caution you against reading at least certain interviews with Gary Oldman, because I don't want to go so far as to say that he's disrespectful and dismissive of his work with Harry Potter or Batman or, or whatever. But it seems like he has a very low opinion of his of his own career as an actor and he outright said i think it was in a, uh, an interview he did with playboy or something like that but he did an interview with somebody and basically made it very clear that he took the role of serious uh serious black primarily because he just needed the money and it's strange to think that, you know, he turned in what I think is actually a really good performance. And it's like he's out there just kind of poking holes in it, you know, and it's just in a weird kind of way. It's not that it ruins anything for me because it doesn't, you know, ultimately he did do a good job. But I guess finding out that 
an actor isn't necessarily as creatively invested in their craft as I am. I don't know why. It's just it's a little bit disappointing sometimes. So I, I feel that way sometimes too. It's 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 tough to remember that for actors, these are just jobs for them. It's like if you know I go to my job at eight o'clock in the morning and I, I I leave at five and whatever I did during the day was what I did during the day and I don't I don't really take it home with me. I don't think about it. And so I right. think I have to remember that that's the way actors sometimes approach these these roles that they have in these movies. That it's just what they do. And they kind of don't give it a second thought. But for us as fans, we look at it as he's playing Sirius Black, one of my favorite characters in the story who has such an impact on Harry's life and all of that. And so we, we make, it, make it more uh, than it is for us in our minds. But for him, it's just another role. But I, I think he, he's a phenomenal actor because he's able to transform uh, into every role. He's, he's able to just transform from Gary Oldman to whoever this like he he's able to embody the character and it's it's funny that you might be talking about harry potter and the christopher nolan batman trilogy because it when you think about it that way commissioner gordon and Sirius black are two totally different characters they act differently they speak differently they look differently and so i think that speaks uh very highly of gary oldman even though he doesn't maybe think of himself in this role uh very well I think it, it shows that he is a, an actor who is able to um, really live inside that character. And I think he's do, he does such a good job in this movie because he's able to play scary, but he's also able to play really kind-hearted and sweet and and uh, and understanding in, in terms of Lupin and, and their friendship. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of disappointing to hear that, but in some ways that doesn't surprise me. Mm, fair enough. Well, and... Speaking of living inside the character, you know, this again is one of those creative decisions that Koran made that I'm not trying to beat this to death, but guys, this is just such an insightful decision and such an obvious decision. I'm surprised it didn't occur to me, but it didn't. But he gave Sirius Black all of these uh, prison tats. And now these are wizarding prison tats, but they're still prison tats. (laughs) And I mean, how obvious is that? But it just never occurred to me. And, you know, this is one of those things where, yeah, there were trade-offs that had to be made. And, you know, there were certain things in the book that just cannot translate over into the movie. But, you know, things like that, you know, the, uh, the tattoos that, that Sirius has on his chest, it's one of those things that I guess you could put it in the book, but it's just, it's not going to have the same, uh, visual input to it you know and there are certain things that film can do that prose novels just can't and there's a reality of living in prison you know irrespective of how little sense prison tats really make in azkaban there's still a like a reality to it that you recognize it as being real even if it's not necessarily true or perhaps it's true without really being real you know and i like the I guess the visual of uh, of Sirius having those tattoos and he's got the long hair and all of these other things. He definitely has this bedraggled look about him. And these are just things that it would I mean, assuming you could you, you could even put stuff like that into a book, it would just be paragraph after laborious paragraph of all of this extraneous detail. Whereas in the movie, you just see it and that's it, you know. 
And it, it, it was a good reminder to me that things that are different are not the same. And prose novels tell stories differently than do movies. And I just, it, it's one of those small, I don't even think I can call it a change, really, but it's one of those little textures that a movie can offer that, you know, at the time, I don't know that I really appreciated all that much, but on the rewatch for this episode, I just cherished. So <sighs> you ready to move on or do you have a, a little bit more on all this? Well, I like the uh, the fact that you brought up the tattoos because I think it does say a lot about the, the costuming and the makeup of this movie that they are able to take something that maybe couldn't work, work in the book, but it immediately tells you something about that character. You know that he uh, has spent time, like you recognize him as a prisoner because what we think of as of prisoners, and, and this might be a stereotype, but um, prisoner tattoos are not uncommon. That's a thing that happens. And so we can recognize that about him and, and associate him with being in prison. And um, just the, the fact that it, it, in some ways it makes him look scarier so it adds to the yeah. threat that you you know that all the characters are scared of him and it makes him more threatening you know he looks more threatening and so I think that that's a nice little thing in there that you don't have to point it out it's just there and it adds to his characterization and it, I, it seems like there's a lot of thought that goes into that and uh, so I really appreciate that that level of consideration of the character and what that look should tell you as a viewer. Agreed. Anywho, so during a stormy Quidditch match, Dementors attack Harry, causing him to fall off his broomstick, which is then destroyed by the Whomping Willow. I, you know, I, I don't, again, don't want to dwell too much on this, but I guess we'll go where we go with it. One of the things that I've never been able to get confirmation on really one way or the other there's this moment in the Quidditch match in Prisoner of Azkaban where uh, it, it basically takes place in this almighty uh, rainstorm. And uh, Harry's getting uh, blasted around by these huge gusts of wind. And it's it's basically just a really uh, dangerous sport to play at that moment. You know, it's a very dangerous game that Harry's playing. And there's there's this moment where he flies up above the clouds and he basically sees this giant this uh, giant cloud that it almost looks like the the face of a dog. And of course, this is calling back to the giant black dog that seems to keep well dogging Harry all through this uh, all through this uh, story. And at the moment that it happens, it's the angle of it is is perfect. It's very just in terms of the way that the uh, I guess that the shot is constructed. It reminds me of this moment from Superman the movie when Superman flies up into the air and he sees basically the face of Jarrell in the clouds at the same time that he hears Jarrell's voice inside of his head. Remembering all the stuff that Jarrell told him, combined with his own personal regrets that he's been carrying around with him throughout the whole movie and the decision he ultimately makes in that moment. But it's just the, the shots are just very similar to one another, you know, and 
I don't know how familiar you are with Superman the movie, but like, did you catch that, or do you even know what I'm talking about, or what? I know what you're talking about, but I didn't think about it in in terms of Harry Potter. But that's that's a, a cool comparison. I I really like that scene and that moment, especially when he's up there and then he he falls because I think the one of the things that's really it really sticks out to me and what makes this uh, what makes Askban so unique in terms of the Harry Potter movies is like just the the way that it's edited and the way the the filmmaking storytelling happens with the the use of the iris wipes and the yes. way the way things uh, close out of the scene and I think even in that moment when he's falling and, and the the iris wipe happens and and you kind of fade out of the scene I think there's even like a, a sound effect like people screaming or whatever um, and so you hear you hear things just as much as you you know you lose the visual but you hear a little bit and it's just that's that's good filmmaking. That's that's really quality editing and and really being in control of how you tell that story and how you you exit the scene. So for me, I really like the and you you mentioned the dog and that that's another uh, wonderful storytelling technique that Karan uses all throughout the movie and that might have been in the script and part of that if I can't remember, but it might be in the book as well, but and you know, that's the grim. That's that's the thing, the, the looming threat that uh, Tr- Trelawney is sort of th- thinking that this is going to be, that there's this grim that is going to be haunting them. And and the dog is, you know, I don't want to, spoiler alert, that's connected to Sirius Black. So the, fa- <laughs> so the fact that there's this image of the dog that's continually going around Harry at every step of the movie, it's just, it's a nice way to visually connect the dots throughout the the story and so I, I think the quidditch in the rain is very unique i don't think you see that in any of the other quidditch matches i think that stands out so yeah that moment is awesome agreed and one of the things that i that, that i like about it is it has this this kind of mounting peril to it that you know harry is trying like crazy to uh basically catch the golden snitch and I don't think he really grasps it right away, but the audience does, you know, when he ice starts building up on the, the end of his broomstick and on his, I don't know which, I guess those gloves that he's wearing and on the rims of his uh, goggles, the dementors are coming. They were lured to the Quidditch match by, uh, by Harry himself Unwittingly, he's just great bait for uh, the Dementors. And so we, the minute we see the ice start uh, forming, we know what that means. Harry probably doesn't in that moment. He has no idea how much trouble he's really in. And again, like you were saying, that's just, I think, really effective and very powerful visual storytelling. And it just... I'm not, I mean, I'm not not trying to kiss the guy's butt too much, but I mean, it does need to be said. This is another thing that it just didn't, it wouldn't have occurred to me to do something like that. So kudos to Mr. Koran. Yeah. And, and iris wipes aren't used as much anymore. Like you see it in the original Star Wars trilogy. And I I think they may have brought that back uh, with the new films, but 
that that's even kind of a throwback to the the old days and the the classic film. You see that a lot in classic film. So I, I think it's a it's a neat thing that Karan was like, I'm I'm bringing the Iris White back. So <laughs> so I I think it's a, a, a it shows his knowledge of cinema and and the way he used it was so effective. Agreed. Well. To get back into it, uh, let's see. Now, where did we drop? Uh, ah, yes, here we go. Later, at Hogsmeade, Harry's shocked to learn that not only had Sirius Black been his parents' best friend and betrayed them to Voldemort, but that Sirius is also his godfather. Later, Professor Lupin privately teaches Harry how to defend himself against Dementors using the Patronus charm. And there's a lot of stuff there to unpack, but... I guess to begin with, we kind of touched on some of this stuff related to Sirius before. You know, this idea of somebody being wrongfully accused of something and basically everyone just kind of going with it because they don't know any better and haven't really bothered to to check the facts. And the few facts that they seem to have access to all seem to point back to this person being guilty when not really. And I, I think a lot of that has been kind of said before. But one of the kind of neat things of that's going on in this whole Hogsmeade sequence is it's never – I don't think anyone comes right out and, and says so, but Ron and Hermione are kind of on a date, <laughs> you know, to the Shrieking Shack. They, they've gotten about as close to it as they dare, and they're – I remember being that age and – trying to find a connection to somebody that I liked that I was pretty sure liked me, but neither of us really know how to do this. I mean, we're not talking about Woody Allen and Annie Hall here that, you know, they've been through this a thousand times before. I mean, this is literally the first time any of them have been on a date with anybody. And Harry ends up, well, actually, I guess Draco and his buddies end up crashing that. And then Harry ends up kind of crashing them. But there's just a, a sweetness to that, you know, like an innocence. I remember being that age and how awkward it it really was, you know, even like reaching out and holding somebody's hand. And I don't know, it's there's a there's there's a friggin honesty to that scene. Yeah, it's very awkward when you watch it. And I'm sure, you know, in terms of the characters, it was probably awkward for them because they didn't know what they were doing. And it was weird probably for them because they were friends. And so when you have to kind of cross that line uh, over friendship, there's there's a there's a different thing there. Um, and it's funny for me because I am more of a Harry Hermione shipper. Um, mm. if, if I'm going to if, if I'm going to be blunt and honest and transparent about it. But I think that moment with Ron and Hermione is very sweet, and I, and I like that they sort of used some of those, you know, just very subtle moments. It wasn't a big deal, but you could sense something was going on with them. Right. I I just really dig it. It's, <laughs> and I agree with you. It's it's well done in that it's so awkwardly done. Is that a good way to put it, or? Yeah, yeah, it's it's awkward and it's very real, I think. And I think, you know, we talked a little bit about Harry's relatability. And I think in that moment, we get a little, you know, we can relate to Harry and uh, Hermione and Ron in the fact that they 
they don't really know what they're doing. They're just kids. Well, I guess at this point, they're now teenagers. So now they're kind of getting into that awkward stage and in, in trying to uh, connect with other people in a different way, on a different level. So I, I like that you're able to relate to them on that on that aspect of when you look back at your own life. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's going on here is Lupin giving Harry private lessons on, in this case, how to use a Patronus charm to defend himself against uh, Dementors. And I can't imagine anybody listening to this episode and not knowing, not having like a working knowledge of Harry Potter and what this is all about. So I guess notwithstanding, basically what Dementors will do is they will suck, they will literally, literally suck the joy like right out of you. They'll suck your soul out of you if you're not you're not careful. And the only known defense against a Dementor is a Patronus charm, which is basically a sort of magical construct that is it, it basically draws from your happiness. And it what it does is it basically creates a, a, a protective barrier between you and the debilitating I guess, power of the Dementors. And so this is the only known weapon that Harry has that is going to protect him from the Dementors, who clearly have some kind of special interest in Harry. And the problem is that this is, this is like, we're talking like particle physics level expertise. This is the mastery that you need to have over your magical powers in order to be able to use this charm, you're basically operating, you're punching pretty, pretty far above your weight, put it that way. And so for Harry to even ask to be taught how to do this, and then for him to successfully do so at later on in the movie, it says something about, uh, the, the kind of raw firepower that we're talking about with Harry, where, Hermione might not be able to do a spell like this in this movie. Like if she, like if Harry tried to teach Hermione how to do this, there's no guarantee that she'd be able to actually pull it off or Ron or any of a number of students at Hogwarts, even like the older students who have a lot more experience behind them, even they might not be able to do it. So the fact that Harry's able to do it in his third year This, again, speaks to kind of clues and and hints that J.K. Rowling is inserting into the narrative that there's more to Harry than even the reader knows, certainly more than than Harry himself knows. And this may not totally be Harry that's doing this. And so I guess as far as the storytelling device is concerned, like, what did you think of this? I mean, you know, whenever you finally had all of the pieces of the puzzle, you knew why Harry is able to do this as when he's so young. Does this cheapen Harry's, I guess, determination and heroism for you? Or for that matter, do you think Harry actually was doing this? I mean, did the part of him that's Voldemort, did that have nothing to do with it? Did Harry truly cast the Patronus charm in your opinion? Oh, I think he absolutely did. I think he, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I never questioned that. Um, and, and I think you bring up a good point that, you know, I think it was something that only Harry could have done in that moment. Um, because you do see later, he does teach the Order of the Phoenix how to do Patronus charms. But 
I think for Harry, he's 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 set apart from other people because they explain in the movie that Dementors can affect Harry more than other people um, because he's experienced true horrors in his life. And I think that that is what makes his happiest memory so much more powerful is because he probably doesn't have a lot of happy memories because I was thinking about myself and in terms of like what would be my happy memory that I would use for my Patronus charm and this is probably going to sound really egotistical or something I don't know but I have a lot of happy memories like I you know I had a good childhood I had a, a good you know I have a good family I have a lot of um, awesome friends and I've, I've done a lot of cool things in my life and so if I had to narrow it down to one I don't know that I could pick one I would have to I would really have to struggle and and figure out which one if I had to only pick one but Harry had a very specific memory of his parents and that was so strong because he had not had many other happy memories and so he kept that so treasured and I think that's what made for me I think that's what made it so much more powerful then he even realized because he had experienced so much darkness that the the lightness, the happiness was really overpowering. So I think I think it's really awesome, actually, that Harry is the one to be able to uh, create the Patronus in the end because it shows that he, you know, he's willing to do it. He's willing to try. He's willing to put in the effort to learn how to do this, and he has the ability to do it and the willingness to do it. And it's, I, I think that stuff in the movie when, when he's, when they're at that little lake and uh, you know, the stag comes out of the Patronus and everything, the music, the, the, when the, uh, when he says expecto Patronum and the Patronus, you know, comes out, the music swells, the score is so beautiful in this movie. And it just, those moments are so heroic and it's just gorgeous the way it's visually shown. The colors are, are so vibrant. You know, it's it's literally lightness amongst the dark. You know, everything is so dark in the movie, but the stag stands out and it's beautifully lit. And um, so I think the Patronus, I mean, that might be one of my favorite parts in the movie is just because it's, you know, you talk about the wizarding world and magic and that just, it feels so magical. So... I, I really like that Harry is the one who is is able to be so powerful to make that happen. <laughs> Me too. And very well said, by the way, and I agree with you. So I just like playing the devil's advocate. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, you're dealing with time travel and you're dealing with um, not. I, well, there's paradoxical time travel and there's non-paradoxical time travel in terms of would that have happened anyway? Or could they have changed it to where Hermione had cast the Patronus or something like that. But it's it's an interesting thing to think about. But I think I think it happened because it had already happened. So I guess that would be the non paradoxical. I always get those confused. But I, I think I think that's <laughs> one of those cases where it had it had already happened. Fair enough. All right. <laughs> so speaking of which after Harry, Ron and Hermione witnessed Buckbeak's execution Ron's pet rat Scabbers bites him and escapes. When Ron gives chase, a giant large black dog of doom appears and drags both Ron and Scabbers into a hole at the base of the Whomping Willow, which is, as it turns out, an underground passage leading to the Shrieking Shack. 
The trio discovers that the dog is actually Sirius, who is an animagus. Lupin arrives and embraces Sirius as an old friend. He admits to being a werewolf and explains that Sirius is innocent. Sirius was falsely accused of betraying James and Lily to Voldemort and murdering their friend Peter Pettigrew. It's also revealed that Scabbers is, in fact, Peter Pettigrew, <laughs> who is an animagus himself who committed the crime for which Sirius was convicted. After forcing him back into his human form, Lupin and Sirius prepare to kill him, but Harry convinces them to turn Pettigrew over to the Dementors. So, fair amount of stuff to to cover there. Now, some of this we kind of talked about already, you know, goings on with Sirius being falsely accused and whatnot, but there is that that sort of creepy moment in the book, and it comes across somewhat in the movie where Lupin at least superficially is joining forces with, as far as we know, the most evil character in the book. And there's this betrayal that, that Harry feels that, you know, I thought you were my friend. I thought you were their friend. I thought you were my parents' friend. The hell happened. And obviously the, the truth ends up coming out here, but here again, this is when we start getting into those, those differences between the book and the movie because there's so much stuff about what an animagus is and how they're different from, in this case, a werewolf and how it is that Sirius came to be an animagus because typically they're born. They're not made in the Wizarding World, but Sirius and James were talented enough that they could become an animagus and there's just all of this texture and whatnot that the the movie, God bless it, just doesn't have time to get into. And so, you know, you what we're basically left like a, an ignorant outsider. He just might think that, you know, it's pretty common to be an animagus that anybody can do this, and that's not really the case. I mean, I would almost want to say that, as far as frequency is concerned i mean like what do you like do you think this is a fair comparison there are about as many anime guy i guess is the plural there are about as many anime guy in the wizarding world as there are albinos in our world hmm i don't know it's it's interesting because sirius is one peter pettigrew is one uh professor mcgonagall is one so in terms of like the little circle of characters that we have there are actually a lot of them but it does seem like it's pretty rare on the whole but the people who are in a in a may guy are are very good at it and they're they're able to uh, transform whenever they need to um right. but yeah I mean, i've never thought about it that way but they they might be pretty rare well i just i thought again it's been forever since i read the book but I was under the impression that it's it's pretty rare. It, it's not just anybody that can do that. So, but maybe maybe I'm just misremembering it. But this is one of those scenes that it's basically packed to overflowing with exposition, because what what J.K. Rowling did earlier in the book, and I guess what Steve Clovis did earlier in the script, is basically lay out a lot of BS, I guess. And now all of that stuff has to be 
undone. And it has to be undone point by point by point. You know, it's not enough to say, oh, Sirius Black is innocent. And Peter Pettigrew, he's alive and well. He's been here the whole time, you know. You really have to cover all of the bases now. And so it's it's really well written in the book. And it is done reasonably well in the movie. It's just... It's just the nature of the beast, you know. It has to be... There's a certain amount of, I guess, uh, clunkiness that this is going to have just because literally everything we thought we knew about Sirius Black, it now has to get debunked. And there has to be no possible way that Sirius Black is guilty. And there has to be no possible way that Peter Pettigrew is innocent. But one of the things that comes out of all of that is that Harry has the chance to allow Peter Pettigrew to die, and he intervenes. He steps between Sirius and Lupin and says, no, he needs to go to the Dementors. And I guess there's a sense in which that really is a fate worse than death. I mean, look, if it's a choice between those two, just shoot me, okay? You're not taking me alive. If that's where you if that's where you think this is going, let me just disabuse you of that, okay? <laughs> You're gonna have to kill me. And so I don't think this is necessarily an act of mercy, but at the end of the day, Harry did save his life. And so something comes out of that. And again, this is one of those things where... It's kind of hinted at in both the book and the movie, but we don't really see the fullness of that for quite some time. And I just appreciate, I guess, the level of forethought, because I don't necessarily think J.K. Rowling had every single little thing planned out. But, you know, and I I mean that on a on a scene by scene basis, I think she had like you know, the high points that, you know, such and such happens in this book, such and such happens in this book, and so on. But in terms of, like, the nitty-gritty plot mechanics, I don't think she had... Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think she had that stuff worked out. But she knew she needed to set this up early. And so when this finally does get paid off in The Deathly Hallows, I mean, like, where were you on that? Well, I like the the fact that she really thought through, especially with Peter Pettigrew, I mean, she made him a literal rat like he's the one who actually was the one who uh turned the potters over to Voldemort so he he was a metaphorical and a literal rat so she actually thought it seemed I mean from the the reading perspective and the the movie watching experience she really thought about the character of Peter Pettigrew and what that would uh mean for the story and I think when you talk about Harry's compassion it's it's wonderful to see him even as a teenager know that there are there are consequences to actions and and he can stop he can intervene and stop that if he wants to to show someone some mercy but i think what we find out later and i think this is what's so smart about the way jk rowling wrote the story is that peter pettigrew like letting him off the hook for that it's not a mistake. I think Harry makes the right choice, but it it has a negative consequence later on down the road because Peter Pettigrew, spoiler alert, he might have something to do with Voldemort coming back into the picture. 
So there's a there's a I guess it's a double edged sword. I don't know. Um, but I I like that she thought so much about the the history of the characters and and where their actions would take them uh, from from this movie on. And uh, you you talked about how like they had to really get every bit of the history down into you know a very short amount of time. And I I think the scene in the Shrieking Shack is great because I when I watch it I feel the history of Remus and um, Sirius's relationship and their friendship and the the connection that they had have to Harry through James and so there's a lot of history there and there's a lot of forethought that J.K. Rowling I think planted in this movie especially that does come back into play in the the, you know on down the series so I think that's actually a really important moment when when Harry lets uh, the rat go Uh, it's very important to the story and to Harry Potter. Well, and the thing is, you know, he had at this at this moment, he had every conceivable reason not to do it. I mean, first off, Harry has just not been raised in an environment that would foster a whole lot of compassion for anybody. You know, I mean, I don't think compassion is the it, that's not necessarily the most obvious takeaway lesson that Harry would have had from the kind of upbringing he had with the Dursleys. So right there, he's kind of a cut above. I mean, he's better than his own upbringing at that point. But the other thing is, Pettigrew took so much from from Harry, you know, with, first off, just the death of his parents. I mean, that would not have happened if not for uh, uh, Pettigrew being just such a weasel. I mean, yeah, dude, Voldemort just might kill you. But, you know, there are some things that are worth dying for, you know, and... If, if you're not willing to die for your friends when they really do deserve it, when they really do need your help, I, I got no, I mean, I just, I have no respect for you. You know, I, I don't. And on top of all of that, it's not enough that he took Harry's parents away from him. He also took Sirius away from him. Harry might have had in his estimation, a normal wizarding life. Except for Peter Pettigrew going two different ways. He took the Potters from him, and then he took Sirius from him. And so I just, I guess the part of me that can be a little bit spiteful of vindictive and angry wouldn't have held it against Harry if he decided, you know what, hell with him. You guys do what you want. In fact, actually, you know what, step aside. I actually want to do it myself, you know wouldn't necessarily have thought because he's a 13 year old kid who's never had a a day of love in his entire life you know and it says so much about him that he was able to I, I don't know just put all of that aside at least long enough to let the authorities handle it you know it was one of those things that I don't think I really fully appreciated until I rewatched it now and thought, you know, wow, you know, maybe you should have let it happen, you know, especially considering what happens later on might not have happened otherwise. So who's to say? But I don't know. It just like I say, it's, a, I think, a really well-written character that Harry, he rises above his own, his own upbringing and every possible incentive to revenge that I think a person can have. And I just I find that very impressive. 
Those are all really great points. And I, I definitely want to rewatch the scene now with those things in mind, because I think it does say a lot about Harry's, Harry's character that he is a 13 year old kid and, and can see the bigger picture. And I wonder sometimes if Dumbledore, you know, you were talking about how like the Dursleys probably didn't teach him a lot of that. And so I wonder if Dumbledore's influence helps him to see that bigger picture because he's always kind of, you know, mentoring him and and helping him develop some wisdom. So I I think you see a little bit in that scene. Yeah, agreed. Well, and one of the things I've met kids that are adopted, as I think, you know, most of us probably have in life. You know, you just run into people sometimes that that were adopted. And there's not necessarily all of them, but a lot of the adopted kids I knew back in when I was in high school, and there weren't all that many, but of the ones that I knew to have been adopted, I've, I got the idea, and you know what, maybe I'm completely wrong about this, but I got the idea on several occasions that one of them in particular, one adopted kid I knew in particular, had way idealized his parents, you know? He like his biological parents. I mean, he'd long ago transformed them into saints and, you know, basically projected every single positive human attribute. I mean, the way that he tells it, I mean, his parents must have been Mary and Joseph because, my God, you know, and I've wondered a couple of times, you know, is that perhaps what Harry's dealing with here that he's basically turned his parents in general, but maybe specifically James into kind of a saint in a way. And maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, but it's just something, I mean, have you ever noticed that with adopted kids or am I just uh, pulling stuff out of my hat? No, I, I think that that does happen because especially if you've never really had contact with your biological parent, you, you imagine what it would be like to meet them. Now, I've never experienced that myself, but I I can imagine that that does happen. And especially for Harry, you know, he's he's only been, uh, he you know, when he was a baby when they died. So he has had to learn about his parents from other people and what his what his friends have told him what Dumbledore has told him, what his aunt and uncle have told him. So he's having to figure out what makes James and Lily Potter based off of all of these other eyewitness accounts, basically. So, um, yeah, and I, th- I think it helps him when he meets Sirius and uh, Lupin that they are able to give him a, a clearer picture of what his parents were actually like. And I think especially with the Marauder's Map, you get to see that maybe James was a little more, um, you know, maybe not as clean cut as maybe I think Harry might have thought he was. He, he definitely, uh, you know, I solemnly swear I'm up to no good. Uh, the, those boys you know, we're up to no good sometimes. So I think you get you get some history in the characterizations of his parents. And I think for Harry, you know, in some ways that benefited him to think of his parents in such a, 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 a good way because I think that's what plays into the, you know, the Patronus charm that he's able to be so powerful because he has, he's held on to that image of them that he, he, he remembers or he, he believes. So, uh, so I think it's a, it's a downside and it's maybe also a positive. Hmm. 
All right, well, fair enough. Well, as the group departs, the full moon rises. Lupin transforms into a werewolf, and Sirius transforms into his dog form to fight him off. And it should be said here that when Sirius is in his dog form, he's basically immune from, I guess, being infected by a werewolf bite. During the chaos, uh, Pettigrew escapes in his rat form. Sirius and Harry are attacked by Dementors. Ah, I bit the crap out of my tongue. Sorry about that. Oh, okay. No. It's bleeding. It's bleeding, too. That's oh, just great. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Sirius and Harry are attacked by Dementors, and Harry sees a figure in the distance save them by casting a powerful Patronus spell. He believes the mysterious figure is his dead father and then passes out. He awakens, only to discover that Sirius has been captured and is sentenced to the Dementor's kiss. Acting on Dumbledore's advice, Harry and Hermione travel back in time with Hermione's time-turner and watch themselves and Ron repeat the night's events. They save Buckbeak from execution and witness the Dementors overpower Sirius and Harry. The present Harry realizes that it was actually he who conjured the Patronus, and so he does it again for the first time. Harry and Hermione then rescue Sirius, who escapes on Buckbeak's back. Lupin resigns uh, to preempt an uproar from parents over a werewolf teaching their children. Sirius sends Harry a firebolt broom, the fastest broom in the world, and Harry hap uh, happily takes it for a ride. The end. So, quite a lot to work through there, and yet not. Now, one of the subplots of this movie that you and I have kind of glossed over here is the fact that Hermione is always showing up in places that she hadn't been before, but now all of a sudden she's kind of here. She's taking an impossible amount of uh, classes at Hogwarts. Some of these classes actually conflict with one another, and it's never explained exactly how all of this is possible. And so it comes out in this scene that Hermione is actually able to attend these classes at Hogwarts at the same time because she's basically using time travel. She's using a time turner in order to travel back in time and uh, take care of all of her schoolwork, attend all of her classes. And she uses it in this sequence in order to well, basically in order to uh, save uh, Bugbeak's life and also do other things that are required in the story. Now, all throughout all of this stuff, basically weird, random things have been happening without Harry, Ron, or Hermione understanding why. But basically just weird stuff has kept happening. And what we find out in, I guess, the, the alternate, or this back-in-time uh, version is... The future, Harry and Hermione, are the ones who are actually facilitating everything that's happening in the story. And I'm not really explaining this all that well. But the point is, this is a very well done uh, time travel uh, trick that J.K. Rowling is doing here where every single loophole gets closed. And it's basically a perfect loop. Uh, things happen by cause by way of causality you know there's not a paradox going on here and 
it's incredibly well done. She abides by her own rules in doing this. And so when it's all over, it actually makes a lot of sense. And so I'm really not explaining this very well. Uh, You you take the mic. I think you explained it very well. And you actually explained that it's the non-paradoxical time travel (laughs) because it is it is uh, whatever happened, happened, that kind of thing. And I, I, I would agree that this movie does time travel perfectly. I mean, every every little hint and uh, thing that they drop in to show you that something is, is not quite right, but you don't know what it is yet. You don't you don't know where the the werewolf howling is coming from and you don't know where that that rock that's been thrown at somebody came from. You you know that something's up, but you're not quite sure. And so the way they come back around to it, everything falls into place. And it's so, I, I would agree. I think it's, it's probably one of my favorite time travel movies, actually. And you don't think of it in terms of, you know, it's not a DeLorean where you have to, meet you know 88 miles per hour it's 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 a different device that the time turner is a little you know an actual physical device and and the way they show the 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 effect of them going back in time is really cool it's almost like a time lapse uh video where you're you're seeing every everything go back in time while they're standing there and and just the the score the music where it sounds like a clock that's one of my favorite tracks on the soundtrack and uh, it, it just, it really helps plant you in the fact that this is a different time period. This is a different time frame. They, they are having to do this again. Yeah, I, I just, I love every, every, every aspect of the time travel because you get to connect the dots as a viewer. And that's, that's always a lot of fun for me. And yeah, that's, that's the thing. I mean, you know, this is... One of the one of the gripes I've always had about uh, time travel is, and a lot of fiction is that it's like it has no consequences. And what I like about this is that it does have consequence. Now, the consequences are positive. I mean, things that events that the characters thought happened, or for that matter, that they thought happened kind of randomly, it turned out that they either didn't happen or else there is. A coherent reason for it like you you were talking about the the rocks that were getting thrown just a while ago or the howls or whatnot or for that matter the they assumed that Buckbeak was executed but they never actually saw it they just assumed and what they discovered is no they were actually able to save Buckbeak and so it I kind of wish that you know all time travel was this well thought out you know because there are times in Star Trek where Star Trek isn't really like a time travel type of thing, but it does come up pretty often, you know? And it's like characters are able to travel back in time and they change the timeline. And it's like there are no consequences to that. Whereas here, they're changing the timeline and we don't understand that until after we see it from their perspective. And we don't know, and what we eventually come to understand is they're not changing it, they're fulfilling it. Right. And. It's to me that's the smarter way to go. I mean, I would almost I kind of want to compare it to the first Terminator movie where uh you know, all of this weird stuff keeps happening to uh, Sarah Connor and the movie is premised on time travel. I mean, that's not a reveal that's made at the end of the movie, but the reveal that does get made at the end of the movie is Sarah Connor, she ends up running into this this uh, steel mill 
basically to have her final showdown with the Terminator. And you kind of need to be, you, you need to have your eyes open, but what you see is that that steel mill is actually owned by Cyberdyne. And so when Sarah crushes the the Terminator, there it's it's not completely destroyed. Part of it actually does still survive. And so using that futuristic technology, Cyberdyne is able to devise the technology that ultimately creates the Terminator, which they wouldn't have had the Terminator not come back in time to chase Sarah into that uh, steel mill and basically set that up for them. So it's a perfect loop. And this is like that, but done, I think, better in a way. And... I just like I say, I wish all time travel was was this internally logical, you know. But there's other stuff going on here too, where this actually does kind of become a this does actually sort of become a monster movie at one point. There's this really well done um, uh, moment right after uh, Harry and Sirius they're sitting there talking about Harry's future living arrangements, and the full moon comes out. We see, this is just a really well done moment where we see the moonlight uh, catch uh, Lupin right in the face. The camera zooms in uh, to his uh, eyeball, his, eye, his iris. We see that change. The camera pulls back out. And it's this total monster movie moment where his entire face is now different. It's, uh, his eyes are different. His skin, tone, his skin color has changed. Uh, his mouth is even starting to change and it's just this total like monster movie kind of moment and you, I, again you know take a drink for those of you who are keeping count would not have thought to do this myself if I was making this movie which is why I'm glad Alfonso Cuaron <laughs> is the one that made this movie so anyway I've been running my mouth what you got oh well I the werewolf to me is I, you talk about not uh not you wouldn't have done what what he did i i think i would have maybe wanted the werewolf to look a little differently i it's it's not i I keep thinking of like all the werewolves that i've seen in tv and movies and i think about the werewolves in uh the american version of being human where they they look a little more threatening they look a little bigger and and scarier and and so I, I, I think about the werewolf in Prisoner of Azkaban. It's it's thinner, and it's a little almost like bonier. And mm-hmm. I, and I, I keep thinking, you know, that it's just ugly. You know, I, I've always thought the werewolf looks weird in the the Azkaban movie, but I think it's supposed to in in a way because it's not supposed to be an attractive thing. It's supposed to be a weird phenomenon that happens to Lupin and he doesn't like it and it's something that is ugly I mean it's an ugly thing he fights one of his best friends because he's transformed into this into this werewolf and so I I do like that you talked about it being almost like a monster movie I mean you have a lot of monster elements in there you have the the transformation of the werewolf you have the werewolf fighting the dog and and all of those things and and I I like that because it is the whole movie, the tone of the movie is very dark and grim and wicked, and I think it fits. I think if you, I think if maybe you had Christopher Columbus directing this movie, and you had everything bright and cheery and everything was great, and then 
you had a werewolf fighting a dog, it would seem a little out of place, but because the movie has already maintained that tone, the monster movie aspect of it really fits. So uh, the, the way it, even though I don't like the look of the werewolf, I think the moment that it happens is very well done. Mm. Well, what happened was, um, crap. What was the, it, it was a series of movie, I even talked about it, Twilight. Uh, flipping through, uh, uh, some I was flipping through a, a stations on a, on the TV. Sorry, I'm just I'm getting a little punchy here. Um, and sitting there with my girlfriend, and she she and I we ended up watching part of one of I don't know which one. It was one of the Twilight movies, and this kid uh, is like running all around and just does this kind of sort of somersault, and then transforms into a a werewolf and I guess I'm not sure if you're familiar with those movies but it's like that mode of werewolf is a little bit more like what I had in mind based on what I remember reading in the book where it was basically Sirius was a giant dog and Lupin as a werewolf was basically turning into a dog of kind of similar physical size but they were both dogs and what we actually get in the movie, I mean, I'm not sure if I like it or if I don't like it, but it's basically a sort of a humanoid canine kind of hybrid in a way. I mean, it, he's upright at times and other times it's like he's on all fours. He could do either one and it's just really weird looking. It's just kind of creepy and his posture is a little bit bent and it's just strange to look at. And like I say, I mean, I guess like the Twilight version of werewolves, where it's basically like a giant wolf, is a little. That's a little bit closer to. Based on nothing, really, but that's I guess a little bit more of what I was expecting. And so, like you say, I mean, I'm not sure if I like this or if I don't like it. I mean, you know, does this actually work better, or am I just repulsed by the fact that this thing is just so ugly? I mean, it's not really supposed to be attractive, I suppose. This is supposed to be kind of a curse, but I don't know. So. I'm not sure what, what what's better, to be honest with you, but it's just you raised actually a really good point, And this is something that I guess had been staring me in the face all these years. And I just dumb about it, I guess. Um, if Christopher Columbus had basically directed this movie the same way he did Chamber of Secrets, and then you get to this horrifying transformation that Lupin is supposed to undergo, I mean, that would be. I kind of think that would be the jump the shark moment for a lot of people watching this movie. Koran basically, he'd earned this moment by the time we finally get to it as dark and weird and kind of macabre as it is. He had still earned this moment with the other horror elements of this story. And so as a result, this isn't like the jarring shift I think it would be if all due respect to Christopher Columbus, but it would be a very jarring experience if he had directed this movie. And again, I mean, it's one of those instances where circumstances kind of dictated a change for whatever reason, uh, Christopher Columbus decided he didn't, uh, Chris Columbus decided he didn't want to direct this movie. I don't know why, but it actually, in the end, I think that actually ended up working to the benefit of the material, you know? And 
that's actually a really insightful point, and I feel kind of ashamed of the fact that I didn't notice that myself. So. Well, if it makes you feel any better, it wasn't until we started talking about the werewolf situation and how you mentioned that it was almost like monster movie-esque. That's when it started to uh, kind of pop in my brain that it would be a very different atmosphere if it was a different director. And I think the the brilliance of Alfonso Cuaron, what he did in this movie, I don't think that could have been done and accomplished in the same way by another director. I agree. So getting down to uh, the end of this thing here, <clears throat> this is... This is... A, a break again stylistically from what's come before this movie is a break from what's come before in that this is a very bittersweet ending I mean yeah you know Harry was able to somewhat clear Sirius Black's name kind of at least with certain people and he was able to find out that he does have kind of a family he has a godfather at least out there and he does have whatever I don't know what kind of moral satisfaction you get out of saving Peter Pettigrew by the time credits roll for this movie, but whatever there is to be had, he has it, you know, but at the same time, Sirius is on the lamb and he's, he has no choice but to go back to the Dursleys. And there's a very clear victory that happened in Sorcerer's Stone. And there's another clear victory that happened maybe a bigger victory that happened in Chamber of Secrets. Here, yeah, the good guys won, but what did they really win, you know? And I guess what I like about this is the fact that not just because of the fact that we know that there are going to be more stories coming after this, this doesn't tie everything up in a, in a nice, neat little package the way that the previous two movies did. There were consequences to doing this, you know? And the good guys, they kind of won, but they kind of didn't win. And I'm not trying to get two clerks with all of this, but I guess what I'm saying is, you know, there's, you know, in life, it's kind of rare that you have the, uh, the crowd-pleasing, resounding victory. More often than not, in life, what you get are kind of small victories. And you sometimes have small defeats. And it's rare to have a huge victory or a huge defeat. You know, generally speaking, life tends a little bit more towards the middle. And it's kind of weird that I'm talking about all of this, you know, in relation to a movie that's all about, you know, wizards and, and hippogriffs and all of and dementors and all this other weird stuff. But there's I don't know, it's it there's nothing real about it on the one hand, but there's a lot of truth to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I like your point about how it's the, the small victories in this movie. You know, they, they free Buckbeak. They get Hagrid's job back. You know, Sirius gets his name cleared. And uh, the, those things are small, but they're in some ways very big. I mean, Hagrid, that gave him his confidence back. Buckbeak got his life saved. And for Sirius, that, that meant everything, that he could reconnect with Lupin and he could get to know Harry and that they, you know, Harry could have some family. And I, I think those things are all very meaningful, even if they are small. And I, I think for Harry, in terms of the overall series, the Prisoner of Azkaban, I, I think is very important in terms of the Harry Potter character because 
because there is no big Voldemort throwdown in this one, as opposed to the other stories in the other books, the other movies in in the in the franchise. This one is, you get a breather from that. You don't have a, a showdown with Voldemort. And I think that's really important because of what comes next. When, when Voldemort comes back in the next book, in the next movie, that, that propels everything forward. And I think the third one, Prisoner of Azkaban, gives him a little time to, I mean, things are still tough. Things are still hard. No, just because there's no Voldemort doesn't mean uh, things are tough. But I think he needs that as a character to to kind of regather himself and find himself again and, and be able to have a, a way to recharge in some ways before he really starts to have to face some real danger. So it's the Azkaban is such a, a unique part of this, the story overall because it's not like the other installments. And I, I think it's it's so much a, a character study more than anything for, for a lot of these characters and especially for Harry Potter. So I, I think that's what makes this one stand out. So, and I think it's why I always gravitate towards it. I always, if I'm going to pop in a Harry Potter movie, I put, I put in Azkaban because it just, it's very much, and especially with the way Quran, uh approaches it, you know, especially with the Harry Hermione moments, you see when they're um, they're waiting out the the things to uh, play out the way that they know that they're gonna play out, and they're in the woods and, and uh, sitting by that tree, and they're talking about you know very serious things, and and when Harry gets so mad about what he finds out, what Sirius supposedly did to his parents, and and Hermione has that. A wonderful moment in the snow where she pulls off the invisibility cloak to find him crying like these are all really important character moments for Harry and I think it's and especially at that age where he is in the 13 year old rage uh, range that is something that really builds his character and not just in terms of the character of Harry Potter but like his character so I, I think that Azkaban is so important in, in terms of the overall structure of the story. And, and even though there's not a huge, big, you know, third act fight, I, I think that, that you need that. I think you need those little small victories to, to be able to go forward. So I, I like the, uh, the point you brought up about that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Now, that actually does touch upon something that I wanted to ask you about. Um, earlier, you mentioned that uh, the first two movies were directed by Chris Columbus. Uh, third one, obviously directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Fourth one is, and I'm looking at the wiki page right now, uh, Goblet of Fire was directed by uh, Mike Newell. That's right. And then Order of the Phoenix, Half-Blood Prince, Deathly Hallows Part 1, and Deathly Hallows Part 2 were all directed by David Yates. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah. Knowing what we do about how the film franchise shaped up, for better or for worse... Do you regret Alfonso Cuaron's departure, knowing that he was offered the gig to direct Goblet of Fire, and for reasons of his own, I'm, that are none of my business, I'm just saying this is what happened, he declined to do it? Do you regret that, or do you wish he'd stuck around and maybe done another another few, or all the rest for that matter? I think that I like 
you know, looking back, I like that he only stuck around for this one movie. Because I think when you when you look at it, and because I hate to say this, but when you look at five through, you know, seven or eight or whatever, I, and I, I guess in, in some ways it's it, it does pay off to have a director direct all of those movies because especially with the last two, they're they're virtually the same story. Mm-hmm. But but I, I sort of like I, I think that's what makes Azkaban so special is that it's just this one movie that he directed. And I, I think that if you had him direct Goblet of Fire, it might not have been so special. And so I, I guess hindsight is always twenty twenty. But I, I, I sort of cherish Azkaban just because it's so different from the rest of them. And I think it might have benefited the series. It, and I think they liked David Yates a lot. I think they, they thought that he kind of understood the world and... And they liked him as a director, so they kept him on just to have, I guess, continuity or something towards the end of the story, um, which is fine. I mean, you know, if that's what they want to do. That's what they want to do. But I, I think it would have been fun to see a new director hop in for every movie because I think what you see with Karan is you see him adapt his sense of uh, filmmaking and his visual style. It fit the story that he was telling and he knew exactly what he wanted to do in terms of how the the dementors were going to look and and how he was going to weave all the visual you know the symmetry together and i think if you for me personally i i would have wanted a a a different director for each different movie that fit what the story was going to be uh telling and what it was going to be showing but i mean you know i'm not a not an executive so they don't listen to me but that's what I would have preferred so I think to answer your question I like that it's just this one movie that he did fair enough I always thought of Harry Potter as as sort of a it's like it's a story at least in my opinion in three movements and you've got the Sorcerer's Stone and the Chamber of Secrets and the fact that those the the movie versions of those stories those were directed by chris columbus i mean i joked about the care bears thing but i think there there was a lot of wisdom in in hiring him of all of all possible filmmakers hiring him specifically to do just those two movies i think that actually works out really well you move into the second movement with uh, prisoner of azkaban and goblet of fire and I'm going to have to at least break away slightly from what you were saying in that I actually would have wanted uh, Koran to direct Goblet of Fire just because, in my opinion, these those two are just so closely related with one another in terms of, you know, the story and the things that, you know, that happen. Things that are introduced in Prisoner of Azkaban that end up getting paid off in Goblet of Fire. And... I think that would have, I don't see how it could have turned out badly, put it that way, at least no worse than what we got. So no problem there. And I like the idea of, so what I'm saying is the same director for those two would have been my preference. And then the idea of the same director, whomsoever it may be, David Yates in this case, directing Order of the Phoenix, Half-Blood Prince, and Deathly Hallows. I like the idea that there's a consistent creative vision guiding those movies because again that's like the third movement now where Voldemort truly is on the warpath now and 
all kinds of scary stuff is happening and people are disappearing and there's all these conspiracies going on and infiltrations that have to take place and rescue missions and all that. And I like the idea that it's the same director guiding that, I guess, that uh, movement of the Harry Potter story. So in the final analysis, the only movie that I think really could have been done better, or at least more to my preference would have been Koran directing Goblet of Fire but in the end you know I think they all turned out the way they the way they needed to I mean when you think about the number of setbacks that happened that were that became actually very good from a creative standpoint very good creative decisions it's kind of strange to think that you know that many setbacks turning out to turning out that well yeah, what are the odds, you know? So, anyway. Now, do you have any uh, parting thoughts about Prisoner of Azkaban or anything like that before we uh, call it a night? Well, I just, I love uh, the Prisoner of Azkaban movie. It is, like I said, my favorite one in the series. I, I love the tone. I love the, the visuals. I love the score. Um, the acting is very good. And, and on a personal note, I, I like it now because even more than I used to uh, because I've actually gotten to go to some of the locations in Scotland where they filmed. And, oh. uh, uh, you know, just the, the little parts. And I think it's uh, Glenfinnan. Uh, so some of those little locations, I, I was able to see some of that stuff. So, And, and just to be in Scotland, and, and I fell in love with Scotland. I have, I have some Scottish heritage, so yeah, I felt like oh, I was... I felt like I was, you know, among my people. But um, just the, the landscape in Azkaban is so beautiful. The way they use the, the hills and the country and everything. It's just, uh, it makes you, it makes me want to go to Hogwarts. Like, just based on the, the landscape in, in Scotland. So, I think it's just an overall, I mean, I, I hate to throw the, uh, the, the M word around, but it might be pretty close to a Harry Potter masterpiece. I think mm. it, I think if uh, and I, I think it's just it's one of those movies that I think of when I think if I could be a film director, I want to do something like this. That's that's the way I feel. Like it's it's pretty close to a perfect movie. I think in my opinion, if I'm not <laughs> like you said, blowing up smoke. Uh, but I, I I think everything about it is good the score the pacing the tone everything um so i really appreciate you having me on to talk about it because it's it's i'm so far removed from harry potter now because all the movies are finished all the books have come out and and so i don't get many chances to really revisit why i loved harry potter in the first place so it's it's always a blast to to discuss it and i'm i'm happy to have you and i I'm not saying this to be evasive. I honestly don't know when I'm going to talk about the rest of the movies, but I would love to have you back uh, to talk about the remainders if you're if you're so inclined. Oh, I would love that. Goblet of Fire is uh, just so you know is my favorite book, even though As- even though Azkaban is my favorite movie, Goblet of Fire is my favorite book. Um, but uh, yeah, I I love. Um, the way that they were able to visually tell those stories, so I, I would I would love the opportunity to talk about them. Well, sounds great, and we'll we'll, we'll figure something out. But like I say, I'm not really too sure when that's going to be. But uh, that I think is pretty much that, at least for uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. And as it happens, that's pretty much it for I think this entire episode, at least this week. But 
As to next week, I'm going to be rejoined by my old friend, Professor Allen, from the Relatively Geeky Network, so that he and I can finish up our discussion about the Chris Nolan Batman trilogy with our Dark Knight Rises retrospective. But that is going to be next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. gonna do with all that junk all that junk inside your trunk I'm a get 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 you drunk get you love drunk off my hump 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 my lovely little lumps Check it out. I drive these brothers crazy. I do it on the daily. They treat me really nicely. They buy me all these ice, Dolce and Gabbana, Fendi and Madonna, Karen, baby Sharon. All their money got me wearing fly. Whether I ain't asking, they say they love my ass in seven jeans true religion. I say no, but they keep giving, so I keep taking. And no, I ain't taking. We can keep on dating. Now keep on demonstrating. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. 
My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.